Hello and welcome to the Why Behind the What. My name is Nathan Elbert, and as always, I am so glad you are listening to this podcast today. If you're a new listener, thank you so much for tuning in. There are so many, so many podcasts out there, and I really do appreciate you taking some time listening to this one today. And if you're a regular faithful listener, glad you're back. Thanks for tuning in for another week. I've been, over the last few weeks, looking specifically at whiteness, at racism, systemic injustices, and hearing from people about what this last few weeks has been for them. I want us to remember uh, how important contemplative spirituality is to our well-being as we do this important work, and sometimes uncomfortable work. But I truly do believe that ancient contemplative spiritual practices are going to sustain us as we do the difficult work of dismantling systemic and injustice or systemic racism, uh, how we dismantle white privilege, and how we do the work of repairing our culture. In this episode, I interview Dr. Daniel White Hodge. Dr. Hodge is Professor of Intercultural Communication and the Department Chair of the Communication Arts Department at North Park University in Chicago. Much of his writing and his research is at the intersection of faith, hip-hop culture, race and ethnicity, and the ethnic minority emerging generations in our world. He's the author of five books, including The Soul of Hip-Hop, Heaven Has a Ghetto, Hip-Hop's Hostile Gospel, Homeland Insecurity, and his most recent book is called Baptized in Dirty Water, Reimagining the Gospel According to Tupac Shakur. He also hosts the podcast Profane Faith, which I am loving right now. I recommend you listen to it after you listen to this one. But in this episode, we talk about systemic racism. We talk about the ongoing black experience in our culture. Uh, We talk a little bit about how the president has changed communication as well as the presidency, as well as what white people do to screw up this important work. Dan mentions a handful of resources, so be sure to check out the show notes for those links. And you can learn more about Dr. Hodge on his website, whitehodge.com. And if you like this podcast, can you share it with everyone you know? Like seriously, everyone. But please, it it does help me out. If you can like it, retweet it, share it on social media, it helps gets the word out so others can listen to these important conversations. And also, leaving a rating on iTunes seriously is one of the best ways to beat the algorithms so more people can find out about this podcast. You can rate and review it in the Apple Podcast app right on your phone. Just go in uh, to this podcast, scroll down, you'll see uh, a link for rate and review. And you can also do it on your desktop in iTunes. If you need help figuring that out, I have a video on my website, nathanelbert.com podcast, which will show you how you can leave a review for this podcast. I really do appreciate it. As always, this podcast was written, recorded, and edited on Monacan land. With that, here's my interview with Dr. Daniel White Hodge. Well, Dan, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Nathan. This is uh, this is a, this is a real treat. Thanks for reaching out. Yeah, I think. We crossed paths at North Park way back when you first started. I was in grad school. Ah, okay. I was wondering. I was thinking AAR, but okay, North North Park. Okay, yeah. I think back, I was done in 2011, 2012, and I think you had just started. I did. I came in, yep. In fact, my first day was February 16th, 2012, so yeah. 
Wow, there you go. You remember you remember those dates. Can't remember well, my keys, but that is stuff like that. Man. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a little bit uh, who you are, just personally a little bit about yourself, and then what do you do professionally? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, I let's see, I'm a, a few different things, I guess, and the hats I fill. Um, I am a husband to my wife of now almost 19 years, Emily White Hodge, and um, we have a daughter. Well, I'm a father too, and uh, Mahalia Hodge, and she's OB14 here coming up in a few months. Um, an educator uh, is what I do. I've been in education or higher education, I should say, now for about 19 years. Um, and, uh, you know, came to it by via nonprofit work. Uh, a lot of that work, uh, was with Young Life and just local grassroots organizations in Northern California. Um, and then prior to that, man, it just feels like, it feels like a whole lifetime ago, man. <laughs> I was a contractor. I built houses and I actually thought that was going to be my career. I followed my guidance counselor's advice of saying, you know, ah, you don't need to go to college be a carpenter jesus was a carpenter you know it's like just go and do that so um (laughs) thankfully one of the guys that i hired he was he was older than me and he was you know going to community college and he was like man these conversations we're having he's like you know because we would always talk about god and life and death and he's like you really should go to college and i was like ah not for me i'm not gonna go to school man you know this is nah and he's like no you really should so that little spark started a whole revolution so to speak but uh, yeah i've been in education i'm on the department chair of communication arts at north park university professor there um and you know my intersection my my research is at the intersections of faith religion and popular culture with a focus particularly on hip-hop religion and hip-hop theology really trying to better understand you know how hip-hop fits into the broader mainframe of christianity so that's mm-hmm. kind of my elevator speech on that yeah how are you with, uh, well, we got a pandemic, we got protests, and we've got an election season coming up. <laughs> how are you reacting to that? And how are you processing what we continue to see in our culture? Well, that's a great question. I think um, that's a, there's a lot there. I think the pandemic is something, you know, obviously you've you know, most I'm imagining your listeners and yourself have been following just kind of the trends over the last two years from, you know, from scientists and, and doctors who've talked about this, right, this kind of super bug. And then I think, what was it, 2017 or 2018, they ran a simulation and, and you know, found out, man, we're, we're really behind the mark and whatnot. And of course, who you have in office right now is just horrendous. And I don't know, I used to say, okay, he's, he's the worst president ever. I don't know. I mean, it's the president's prior to, uh, particularly prior to the, um, uh, you know, Civil War. I mean, we're, we're pretty rough, right? I mean, open about slavery. I mean, I think Trump is really the first white president that, you know, is acknowledging his whiteness and just he's rewritten the rules of how we understand politics and especially the White mm-hmm. House. All those rules of how we thought we're supposed to interact with the president are gone. And I don't think they're coming back. Even if he is ousted in, in, uh, in, in November, he controls the courts, right? He controls, he's elected, mm-hmm. you know, damn near 30 judges uh, that have went really by all means. And, and I believe that's by structure because, you know, Trump is a mastermind at commanding the media. He is a genius at understanding and knowing what, what bites. And he, most of those judges for these, maybe the exception of two, uh, went unchallenged. I mean, 
Um, so that's that's going to be with us for a long time, not to mention just the Supreme Court. Um, and as a person of color, I mean, courts, laws, policies, that's something that you have to pay attention to because those affect us. Those um, are things that we have to deal with because those are the things, right, that we call the laws of the land. So that narrative and that imagination is, is you know, affects people who have been on the, the underbelly of this country for so long. So I think about that. I think about what's happening now in terms of protests and George Floyd. I know today, at least the time of this recording, you know, it's memorial and they're having a funeral service. Um, I mean, you know, I think, you know, we're seeing the, 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 the tiredness, right. Of what has been happening. I mean, you know, God bless the city and the cities. If you know, uh, those cops are found not guilty. I mean, for me, it used to be, Oh man, arrest the officers, but it's not enough to do that anymore. Right. It's right. like, it's the conviction. It's the changing, the ongoing changing of the guard. It's like, it, this is, this is a, that for me is the bigger pandemic because that type mm-hmm. of stuff, there is no country, no space that black people can go that they can feel like, okay, this is my home. I mean, people in the Latinx community, they're they're They have their respective countries for the most part. Right. Um, you know, indigenous folks, you know, can claim this land as theirs because they were here. Right. And I'm not, and that's not to say black folks are like the only ones, but it's like, we don't have a country. We don't have a sovereignty that we can say that's us. So we're here trying to figure out amidst all these things that are going on. Right. Then, and, and being told you're not worth it. You're not this, you can't have access, the same access we do. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult to make sense of a lot of times. And I think the pandemic obviously, highlights some of those areas i would hope for systemic change from this because man i don't know i don't want to see what happens next really i mean you know or maybe i do want to see what happens next if if these officers are found not guilty you know because i'm like it's just we're we're minutes away from another george floyd minutes because Mm -hmm. nothing's been done since really ever (laughs) you know what i'm saying so it's like I don't know. So I, I will see. And he's like, you got Amazon and Uber and, and Target and places like that. Like, oh, all this money going to Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, mm, oh, okay, let me let me check y'all books. Let me see. Is, is it really? Is it really? Because like Tupac said, man, it's like charity rarely makes it to the places it needs to make it. So those mm. are just some of the thoughts that I'm just, you know, swirling around in my head about about this time. I wish I had better answers. It's just it's something that is, you know, it's, it's a constant. And I think as a person of color, it affects us emotionally, spiritually, physically. Um, and it's not just easy to just keep going with work. And I think that's part of what my white colleagues, you know, can't and don't understand. Mm. What, what are some personal or spiritual practices that you're doing to kind of maintain yourself? Because I, I do think um, they're just so essential. And I see so many people just, we're tired, we're tired, we're tired. Um, and I think for white people, we're like, let's go and we're in it for a tweet or two. Um, and we're not we, like, we're not in it for the long haul most of the time. Um, but we need to be. So what are some practices that you're doing to just maintain your wellness in a season of, of just outright? I mean, like you said, overwhelmed life. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, there's a few things, uh, and especially for both my partner and I, we don't, you know, we don't attend a church. Um, uh, and don't, you know, don't necessarily have those, those traditional connections, right. To what we, one would think of as a, you know, a spiritual practices going there. But I do feel like we're, um, 
there is, and, and I think that's a sense of that we're still trying to figure out and work out. Like, what does community look like? Because, you know, churches, I mean, just in general, and I don't know. I mean, people say, well, what are you looking for in the church? I, I don't know, but I know that what we get right now is it ain't cutting it. So mm-hmm. um, we've had to come up with different things, right, to do. So, you know, mindfulness exercises help, um, and uh, those are something that we can do. Uh, the spiritual discipline of just walking. Um, I'm not a runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never liked running, you know, saying unless it's the police or a dog or I see yeah. other black people running, you know, saying. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I do. I, I think there's something about walking and, and something that that and just being able to connect with my partner, with, you know, the the community, with the the ground, the pavement. I think those are aspects of that. Um Music. I, I do music, and uh, I think that's another spiritual discipline of feeling that sense of yeah. spiritual levity that that is that I'm able to connect with through music, through song, through art, through through that aspect of culture. Um, and so, those are some of the areas for me. I think. I mean, I think prayer looks differently because I feel like I'm having this ongoing conversation with God, and I think God shows up in different ways, uh, speaking through, like I said, nature, the mindfulness. Again, listening to our bodies, listening to what the earth is saying. You know, for me, I like being out in my yard, working on, you know, in, 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 on grass and working, fixing things, you know, seeing some of those things of, of completion that you don't normally see in people and <laughs> in, 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 in systemic change. It's like you can plant a seed. If you fertilize it and water it right, you know, it's, you're going to see some results. And uh, it's, it's, it's nice to see that. And that for me is, is just some of the, I've, I've tried to return to some of the more simplistic aspects of spirituality and, and whatnot. And of course there's other things like Lectio Divina and, 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 um, you know, there's, there's aspects of the Eucharist and, and whatnot that we can take part in and, and whatnot. But for me, I see God show up in much more of kind of just the ongoing organic ways of, of living. Mm-hmm. So for me, and, and part of it is pulling away from, uh, uh, social media and news, uh, and just, you know, turning that stuff off. It doesn't, that doesn't, I don't say I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect at that, that there's clearly, times when I'm just like, okay, I'm in the weeds here. I need to pull myself out and be done with it. But uh, there's definitely times when it it helps when I'm able to just pull away from that. And I think that's also part of the ongoing process of therapy, right? Which is also something both my partner and I practice. And it's like therapeutic practice, talking to somebody, you know, who's a licensed clinical psychologist and working through those things. And then there's the aspect of just, you know, um, she is a, what is it? The spiritual director as well. So it's like, Mm. being able to connect with not that she does spiritual direction with me, but it's like, you know, being able to have that around and talk about some of those things. Again, those are aspects for me that, you know, fulfill my spiritual need and, and, and drive, so to speak. That's great. Your you and your wife actually just were recently on your podcast, uh, which is called profane, profane faith, which I've loved for a while, but I love that episode. Um, I think it was just a few weeks ago, actually. Um, but you really address the two worlds in which we live, right? Like the white world and the black world are just two completely different worlds. And you guys really frame that so well. Um, and I really, I just really not only appreciate that conversation, but I think as you kind of mentioned on that show, you're seeing that more and more, or maybe I should say white people hopefully are seeing that more and more. But I could be wrong. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, I think you know it's taken this long just for, for for Emily and I to get to a place where we're 
we're, you know, we've been talking about these things, right, for quite a long time. And and, and thanks for the shout out to, to Profane Faith. I, I appreciate that, man. I think, um, you know, we've been trying to work through some of these things, you know, from from day one, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the time we met and uh, seeing what she's had to go through and, and you know, uh, and just even ask, you know, parts of her family what they've refused to go through in regards to this. Uh, oftentimes I see her just as the, you know, she just has a black chip on her shoulder or whatever. So mm-hmm. um, that is problematic in many regards. Right. And so it's like, I don't I don't know. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure. I used, prior to 2016, I used to be like, oh, man, if white folks just do this and oh, man, if white, you know, white, oh, they're coming away. This, this is great. Now I'm just kind of like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I really don't. I, and and um, and this is after looking at research, looking at all the stuff that's been published over the last, you know, really 50 years in critical race theory and sociology and psychology and social cognition, journal of human behavior, looking at aspects of race, looking at I me mean, right. It's like, it's constant, right? Like the, the numbers are there to support it. I mean, just from a financial perspective, the disparity of, of wealth right. between, you know, white and black Americans. I don't know. I think there are a few who get it. Unfortunately, those folks and Richard Pryor said this the best. It's like the folks who think progressively are not in positions of power. It's the people who mm-hmm. think, like racists and bigots are the ones who were in, in positions of power. So yeah, I don't know what that means, but yes, that was a great episode because I think it at least gave us a space to just talk about for her, what it meant to be white, a woman married in an interracial interethnic you know, relationship and the process that she's been through and watching and seeing something that is obviously hitting very close to home because that's where she grew up right? You know, the twin cities yeah. are her, yep. her place. So that was, um, yeah, it was a great conversation. I and I knew I wanted to get her on, and this was just a great moment for that. Um, given that again, that's that's her hometown, and so she knows the she knows the territory well. One of the things I realize in my own life in this journey, as well as I see in many other white friends, is we we don't see or we refuse to see, and then when we do see, we're either you know, we, we are quick to defend or get defensive or, you know, make a comment and then back off. Um, and what I'd love to ask you is how do you, what are some things white people have done that you were just like, bangs your head against the wall, <laughs> makes you want to like, yeah. Oh, brother. All right. Well, how, how, how long will you? <laughs> um, I, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, I think for me, I'll go personal because I mean, I think I do believe that there's a lot of white folks who aren't right doing the seal high and, you know, neo-Nazi Ku Klux Klan stuff, but it, you know, yes, that's, that's an issue. And we saw that in the uprisings, we're seeing that, right. The infiltration of law enforcement community. So yes, that's an issue. I'm not trying to to downplay that or to kind of footnote it even. But I think the stuff that I have to interact with are, I think, well-intentioned white folks who want to do right. And they're so uncomfortable with their own ignorance of race and their own ignorance that they, that they almost fumble into doing something. I mean, I think about how many times I've been asked in the last week to give a statement or to, to say something to my colleagues, you know, in some kind of meeting or something. And I'm just like, no, 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 no. I mean, that stuff drives me nuts because I'm just like, it It shows the insensitivity. I'm like your black friend. And because there's a handful of us still left at the university, it's like, then we become kind of right, the showcasing. And I'm like, I'm not going to do your heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me is the frustrating part because 
you know, now that we're in crises, now that, you know, people want to come and say, it's like, but this is stuff that we, I've been talking about for years. My, my, the drum that I've been beating on race and racism really hasn't changed that much in two decades, three decades. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always ask like, well, why now? Right. I think about the great little documentary film. Folks haven't seen it. It's called the, the color of fear. I don't know if, who has seen oh, yeah. that. Oh Yeah highly recommend if you can get your hands or a copy of it you know into your hands you know take a look at it i believe a lot of public libraries now carry it so you should be able to have access to that lehman was stir fry seminars is uh the producer of that but it was done back in 93 i saw it in undergrad in the 90s when i was taking you know communication courses um and blown away and and what gets me is that we haven't changed that much <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. styles and haircuts but there's a character on there named David Christensen who really just sums up a lot of white folks. Again, well-intentioned for the most part, uh, but just completely ignorant and then compounds the issue, right, by trying to argue, well, that didn't really happen. Or, hey, why don't you think about it this way? Or, you're really the problem, you know, Victor. You're the one who's causing these things. And when you boil it all down, it really then comes down to his own insecurities, the fact that he was mm-hmm. raised by a racist father. The fact that he doesn't want to believe this world that is being told to him that exists. Right. And I think that's, I mean, but in, and that's the emotional labor that I feel like black folks and people of color have to deal with and push through. And, you know, I, I can tell you, especially my first few years of teaching, you know, how many conversations were hijacked by particularly white women crying and bursting out into tears and like, Oh, I'm just so upset. And this, and then the whole conversation leans that way rather than actually dealing with the issue. Now I'm cool. I'm just like, all right, we gonna, but we still gonna keep talking about right the fact that yeah. black women, black people, people of color still have to deal with this. I'm not, ex- you know, saying that you shouldn't be upset, but again, I mean, it's very easy with those white tears, and that's just again another thing. And I don't know. I mean, that's and that's part of the the, the I don't know part. It's like, I, what can be done? We've been trying a lot of things for a long time, and uh, it it seems like we're it, things are coming to an head. You talked about the pandemic. Mm. Uh, we're in a new decade. We're in a new century. Uh, people want to go back to Mars. Automation is, is, is on the brink of everything, right? It's like Amazon just opened a new factory or what's something. I mean, it's something huge that only Amazon can do, right? It's like JCPenney's is going bankrupt. You got Macy's on the brink. All these places at once, right, were once these huge, you know, modalities of, of capitalism, right? And you even play at places like Walmart that are sweating Amazon now, right? Of yeah. all things, the devil itself is sweating, you know, its its own a product <laughs> of, 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 of Satanism, right, and the capitalism. Um, and I ain't go front, man. I, I shop from Amazon. But my point in saying all this <laughs> is that it's automated. There's only probably about, you know, in a warehouse that's probably six football fields big, it's huge, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's probably maybe only 50 employees in there, 60 employees. Machines are doing the rest in there, right? And so we're headed into that future. That's mm-hmm. that's that's coming. And I and that and I include myself in that because you have a new generation, particularly my daughter's generation, especially now with COVID that's happened. Like, why do we need school? If I can do mm-hmm. all this stuff online and I can access the videos and all that. Why the hell do I need to show up to a building and spend 12 years doing this? So we're in the infantile processes of redefining how our society operates um, and what the automation of society looks like. We're into a new post-industrial era, um, and it's going to be coming with electronics. AI is on the rise. And so I think about all those things. And again, I think about who gets left out. Well, 
here we are, right? We're still mm-hmm. dealing with some of the same things that we were dealing with 50 years ago. You know, now we got these little devices, right, that everybody has. We're not using rotary phones anymore. You know, we're not, you know, we don't have, we don't even have operators anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So my point being is, is that I, what, white folk, I, we're into some uncharted territory and I wish I had better answers for that. I mean, I continue to do what I do, but, you know, I get white students at a, you know, a later point in, in their age and I'm still getting students that, hey, you're my first you know, black professor. I've never had a, anyone sure. black in front of me teaching me. I mean, I, this semester, I got like six emails from students. You're my first. This semester, 2020, you know? So it's like, well, what has been going on prior to that? Because we know all about the biases. So I'll stop there. No, no, that's great. <laughs> I I think, you, I mean, you mentioned this on on your podcast, but I think a lot of white white people, we fail in this conversation. because, And even you mentioned just now, it's so individual. Like we have our white tears, right? And we don't think about the systemic aspect of it, um, which I think is detrimental to not only our fully understanding this, but then also kind of our pleas of Black Lives Matter. If, if it's just this individual, let's let's have a black friend, doesn't work. Um, and you've mentioned a few of them already, but where do you see the systemic... Uh, whether it's institutions such as our schools or churches, neighborhoods, um, the systemic racism that white people continue to not see or ignore. Right. I mean, I think this is part of what Peggy McIntosh talks about, right? You know, the invisible knapsack, right? It's like this, this, you don't ask a fish what it thinks about water because it just, it lives in it. And it doesn't necessarily Mm. even know what that is because that's life. And I think that's where we're at. Right. I mean, when you think about systemic issues, right. And system and historical systemic issues, not just people, some of people are just waking up to George Floyd and being like, Oh my gosh, I had no idea. It's just like, well, we can take this all the way back to 1619 and even, you know, the age of exploration, even prior to that. So, you know, it, 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 it raises the question, right? It's like, I think, yes, systemic rules and policy, again, judges uh, who sits in the high court. This country is run by white men in particular. I mean, yeah, you have some white women, but there's no real ownership of, of persons of color. And, and when you see something like, for example, Oprah, you know, she has her own network and everything like that, right? That's one outshoot. Yeah. But Oprah isn't just overwhelmingly creating stuff for and by black folks. She's doing what Oprah does, which, okay, cool. Maybe you have a Tyler Perry. All right, cool. He's, you know, got a black studio and everything like that and all that like that. We can still count him on one or two hands. Yeah. As opposed to white ownership of this land. And uh, that for me is much stronger than just a kumbaya moment and somebody marching, somebody posting a tweet or going, you know, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, making their profile picture dark or whatever. Uh, that's great. But I guess we're just to the point now is like we've been down this pathway before. Remember Trayvon Martin? Everybody put hoods on and stuff. Well, we're still dealing with the same thing. George Zimmerman mm-hmm. sold the gun that he killed Trayvon Martin with on eBay and got yeah, got right. paid for it. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yes. Right. right. So <clears throat> that's the type of stuff that I think just goes unnoticed. I mean, let's, let's put it another way, right? I mean, let's look at us as men. I mean, I don't have to think about being kidnapped or 
right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think about those things. When I leave work, when I teach my night classes and I'm leaving campus at 11, 11.30, I'm not thinking about, is somebody over in the corner, somebody in my car? I'm not. So it's it's difficult, right, for me, that cognitive dissonance when a woman then comes and says, yeah, I, I'm not going to park there because there's no lighting around here. I don't think about that stuff. Mm-hmm. If anything, I'm thinking like, okay, who's going to call the cops on me? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, it's like, and, that, and that stuff has happened, right? It's like I've had that happen, not necessarily on North Park's campus yet, but I have had that happen on other campuses where I show up and, you know, then you got the campus security surrounding and being like, hey, what's going on? Why are you here? You know, this is that type of stuff. So I think it's the same thing with gender. As men, we have a certain veil of privilege um, that we have to continue to dismantle. And that's a lot of hard work. And uh, I can get it because I'm married to someone of the opposite sex. And this I don't. Mm-hmm. And, and this is not to knock anything on LGBTQI family. Um, I'm just saying as somebody who's married to a woman, I am able to begin to see and understand. I was also raised by, you know, two women. Uh, and seeing a different side of that. Um, that's those are some of the challenges because then once you see it, what is the applicable thing to do? Right. Locker room talk, men who just, you know, I mean, again, I mean, these are all things that are challenging to the white systemic layers of, of power and privilege. Um, mm. that go back, like I said, eons. Right. Right. Where do you see hope right now? Um, very small places. Um, mm. I think, uh, you know, people who are out still, you know, trying to work and trying to work with policymakers. Um, Gen Y or Z, however people want to categorize it and stuff, man. I know people, the Gen Z is being thrown around, but for me, it's, you know, particularly those between the ages of 18 and 28 from ethnic and urban uh, 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 minority, you know, populations, you know, who are trying to envision a different future, um, so that we don't head into, I mean, cause I think a lot of people, especially progressives are thinking, let's just get Biden elected and we're going to be all mm. right. And we'll be, we'll be able to go back to normal. And I'm like, we're, we're never going back to normal. <laughs> there mm. is, there's a new normal and it's coming, but we are on uncharted territory. Even the way Trump is, you know, created the, you know, the, the, the way the presidency even looks right now, he has redefined textbooks are going to be, have to be written on the way he geniusly created a campaign market, you know, uh, in 2016 and doesn't do any of the stuff that what advisors and political scientists have been talking about for eons. He don't do any of that stuff. And it's still, you know, still, it's still moving. You know, and I still have a hunch that he's going to win in November because uh, Biden's got all kind of problems <laughs> with him, man. But, uh, you know, the reality of it is, is that, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll pause on that. I mean, I don't even know if I answered the question, but I'll, I'll pause on that. Because, like I said, there's some, there's some things that we, we as, as, as a country, as a nation, haven't come to grips with. And one of them, of course, is the long legacy um, of racism and hatred, that with which this country mm-hmm. was, was born and founded on right right and we keep refusing to talk about it i mean it keeps evolving and we let it evolve yeah i'd love to as a communication scholar i mean this is what you do you keep bringing up the president some of his i mean it is must be just a communication 
scholarship opportunity. Oh, it's, right? I mean, it's like a dream come true, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, from tweets to speeches to, I mean, it, it really seems like, like you said, we haven't seen a president communicate in this way ever. And what does that mean for the future of communication and presidencies? I mean, I remember reading early on, I think it was in New York Times, about someone uh, studied his speeches and that the way this president speaks, we as listeners fill in his, his sentences because so many of his sentences aren't complete. Um, and so we fill them into whatever we might hear or think or the lens through which we see the world. Um, but yeah, I'm sure you see a ton of that more than the average person. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that's important, right? When you think about the Doppler effect with um, with communication speech patterns, right? I mean, Trump, you know, creates speech, especially if you looked at his stump speeches, you know, prior to him being elected. I mean, he tested out material much like the way comedians uh, test out material in clubs, which would work, which doesn't. Mm. Um, what phrases to use, how to use them. And then they mastered that shit, right? Um, and the reality of it is that then what he, what really he capitalized on was the fact that they were spending, you got to remember, Cambridge Analytica was spending a million dollars a day, a day on Facebook ads. That's just Facebook. That's not any other social media platform. That is Facebook alone. One million dollars a day. Think, let that sink in. I mean, for those, I'm not, I can't think of, I think $1 million. I'm like, man, I hit the lotto. Okay, I'm going to pay the house off. I'm going to pay some student loans off. I'm good to go. Put some money away for retirement. $1 million, just on ads. So think about that. Just on ads. That's nothing else. That's not travel. That's not gas. Mm. It's food. Facebook ads. Mm. That was tantamount to something that, again, unprecedented. But here's the thing. You talked to Trump's campaign manager at the time. He was just like, look, I'm not doing anything different. I mean, they spent more money than the Obama campaign, but Obama laid all that stuff out for them in 2008. Obama was the first president to really begin to utilize personalized emails to people and saying, hey, Daniel, mm -hmm. hey, Nathan, what about voting for me? You know, you think about this and people are like, whoa, this, this guy is reaching out to me. Well, Trump took that a step further and was just like, okay, you want to talk about QAnon? You want to talk about uh, the birth birther movement? So he capitalized on the narrative that black Americans are here illegally. He's capitalizing, but at the same time, saying to your face, I'm the best president that black people have ever had, right? You know, I, the, the mm -hmm. unemployment has dropped tremendously, you know, while, while, I'm, while I'm, I'm in office. And so you have these verbal, nonverbal signals, you know, what, what are really called, you know, dog whistles, right, that are, that are in there, you know, Charlottesville. There was good people on both sides. It's like, really? That's the first president that's going to acknowledge, right, that neo-Nazis, they're, they're good people, right? They're, they're real good people. Um, Bannon was a designer of, of this. I mean, all this stuff falls into play with what Theodore Adorno lined out, you know, almost 80, 90 years ago. Um, and again, you repeat a lie long enough, people believe it. Um, mm -hmm. Arguments are made towards the lowest common denominator, not towards the intellectual, not towards the person who's thinking. They are made to the person who's just the day-to-day. Mm. The cat and the mechanic, the cats out, the the farmers out there, the coal miners. I mean, think about that. We're not going to coal anymore. Give it up. Mm. It's over, right? It's a pollutant. It's destroying our environment. But what does Trump do? No, we're bringing coal mines back, right? I just read an article this morning from the New York Times talking about how 
you know, environmentalists are having a real hard time because the EPA is pulling all kind of stuff back now, right? So it's this notion and idea, right, that, and Trump says whatever people want him to say. You know, he, okay, you want me to be Republican? Cool. You want me to be an evangelical? Cool. But we've seen just how thin the veil was. We all knew it was, right, with particularly conservative uh, evangelicals, right, about all, you know, morality matters and pers- a person of marriage and can't, Dude, Trump is none of that, yet that's your boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Affairs with a porn star, of which you say is the greatest sin next to, like, abortion? Like, come on. Come on. So, again, as a communication theorist, it's it's important to notice the rhetoric, you know, this informed narrative that we have. Like you said, people fill in the blanks with those things. You know, make America great again. The hell does that mean? Well, it means a lot to people. Right. It means a lot to the Mm. way we understand how particularly white Americans feel about this country. Right. We're tired of people coming into our, you know, across the border. We're tired of being thought of. I mean, listen to the white male narrative. Right. You know, um, about how they feel that they've been taken advantage of, that their story doesn't matter anymore and that they are they're great. They're they're even more discriminated against, you know, than than black people in this country. And so you know, racism doesn't exist. It's a liberal agenda. So, and now, you know, the fact that Trump will say, oh, the media is, you know, fake news, but then he'll sit down for an hour long interview. And I'm just like, man, this dude is, whoo, this dude, I'm telling you, man, he is, and he's created the narrative. Whenever Trump says something, it's in the news. It's in there. Mm -hmm. The fact that he's holding press conferences on Twitter, that ought to tell you everything right there. And then has the nerve to call Twitter out and be like, oh, y'all are, you know, silencing me and I'm going to, you know, put Twitter on blast. I'm just like, wow. But we're not dealing with logic anymore. Right. I keep seeing these numbers like, oh, Trump's favorability. down." That's the other thing. He's caused us now to rethink what do these polls actually mean? So Mm -hmm. those are just some of the areas. I'm going to bore your listeners. Those are just some of the areas that (laughs) that I think are important that are overwhelmingly Parts of where we're at as a society right now, we're addicted to our social media. We're addicted to the 24-hour news cycle. We're addicted yeah. to clickbait. And that's what he capitalized on. Yeah. How, how then is social media... Um, uh, what do I want to ask? Because I feel like social media has been used for certain justice movements. Right? Like, I mean, Black Lives Matter was... it. I mean, the fact that there is social media, I think, has made that movement, in, you know, just, it's incredible. Um, so what's the balance of the use of social media without getting addicted to this kind of the clickbait, but also using it? Well, it's like I tell my students, it's like, you know, we all have a media diet. And I think, you know, as with any diet, mm-hmm. if we're consuming nothing but sugars and fats and salts, we're going to have heart problems. We're going to gain a lot of weight. We're going to, you know, not be in shape. I think we have to be literate about what we're taking in because you're right. Media isn't this all bad thing. You're right. Black Lives Matter got started as a hashtag uh, right. and now it's grown into a national movement. Um, so, yes, and I think young folks, again, particularly those 18, 28, really know how and under, understand how to engage that and make that work. I mean, I'm going to front. I got Instagram way back in the day thinking it was a camera filter app. And then people yes. was like joining. And I'm like, what the hell is this? 
why are you liking? Why do I need friends? And I'm, I still don't know how Instagram works, right? You know, but it's like, hey, I'm in my mid to late 40s. So it's just like, I'm not supposed to know how Instagram works. Um, <laughs> well, so to speak, I should. And I know I need to spend more time fi- trying to figure it out. But all that to say, yes, it's a powerful medium. I don't have a million dollars a day to spend on ads, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's part of right what it is, right? Right, the algorithms that Facebook had in particular, um, in, in regards to how news and media got got set up. I think that's where we got to be able to. Even now, it's like even some of my you know uh, uh, friends and whatnot they post off, and I'd be like, "Is this this for real? Like, I gotta check this. I ain't gonna retweet this." Yeah, I think we have to double check those things because it's so easy. Because the, the thing is, is that you have. You do have people like, for example, Russia. I mean, that's a whole other conversation we haven't even gotten into, right? Um, but it's like you do have people that are on both sides. Russia took on both liberals and conservatives, mm. right? It's like I see these people who were like Twitter's my only like really public social media account. I see these new accounts of people following me like, oh, they just joined like May of 2020 or June of 2020. I'm like, you know, and all of a sudden they have like 500 tweets and they're Black Lives Matter. I'm like... Hmm. Nah, I ain't following you, man. In fact, I'm mm-hmm. gonna mute you, and I may just end up blocking you because I don't know who you are. Um, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? But that's the type of stuff, right? And you have the trolls and the bots and all that stuff, yada yada yada. Those are the things I think we have to educate ourselves on. You know, which is why I teach a, a current course on that: friends and family in the mediated era. And we and we kind of you know walk our way through a lot of this stuff. How do you become more media literate uh, in what mm-hmm. we ingest? Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, how can people get connected to you as well as how can people support your work that you're doing? Oh my gosh. Well, shoot. Uh, probably the quickest and easiest way is just to go to whitehodge.com. Um, there you'll have links to my books. Uh, I have some select essays. There's also links to my podcast, uh, profane faith. Um, so yeah, whitehodge.com. There's links there to my Twitter. I got some LinkedIn and whatnot. And the Facebook page, I think is connected to the white Hodge podcast one. Uh, but that's how folks can get a hold of me and they can you know if you want to support like i said i think buying books likes and retweets it's real simple stuff to do you want to have a brother out i'll work with you and 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 you know we'll work that out uh but whitehodge.com awesome and i'll put all those links in the show notes for people to click on and share and see and all that but um thanks for your time and the work you're doing i really appreciate it and uh thanks for your being bold for speaking truth um, and being faithful when it doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope. Um, but your work gives me hope. So I, uh, I really do appreciate it. Thank really you. It's been, a, it's been an honor and a pleasure to come on, man. Thanks for asking. And um, yes, absolutely. I'll repost this as well. And you keep up your work too, brother. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. those, those white guys in there, you know, try to nudge and be like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, Nathan? And you can be like, hey, <laughs> hey, hey. So thanks again, brother. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. And so friends, as you continue to do this essential and important work, may you have peace, may you have calm, and may you have happiness. Mm